0: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where Freethought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events.
1: You do not seem to appreciate what danger Justinian causes.
0: The emperor is young and strong. His madness, no less, surely an emperor should not undertake such a task. As a common contestant, he risks his dignity as a sovereign.
1: The emperor is descended from illustrious stock,
0: Nero, for example. He was no credit, certainly not to be imitated. Naturally, but then he was without the service of a counselor such as I. Is that not true? <laughs> Is in no hurry to pit his strength against yours, my
1: Emperor.
0: Maybe his confidence in victory has left him. The signal. Look to yourself. So, what you just heard was an English voiceover snippet from Theodora, slave empress a poorly received Italian film from 1954 that purported to dramatize the romance between 6th century Eastern Roman Emperor Justinian and his commoner wife, Theodora, who, by the way, in real life was not actually a slave, though she was reputed to be a courtesan. Now, you may be asking yourself why a classy podcast like this would start with such an obscure and campy movie to soundbite as an introduction to an interview with this week's very serious guest, Byzantine historian Peter Saris, author of the great new book Justinian, Emperor, Soldier, Saint. And the answer is that I couldn't find any other better movie about Justinian to soundbite, which, as I will discuss with Peter Saris, who's also a history professor at the University of Cambridge when he's not writing books, is very strange given the incredible details of Justinian's life. Here was an impoverished peasant from the war-torn Balkans, living on the borderlands of the collapsing western half of the Roman Empire, who followed his uncle to Constantinople, where both men, uncle and nephew, became soldiers and rose up to both become emperors. First the uncle, who became known to history as Emperor Justin, and then the nephew, Justinian. And this rags-to-riches story is just the first chapter in Justinian's remarkable life. Through a series of machinations worthy of a Game of Thrones season arc, Justinian completely upended the old aristocratic order in the snake pit of Byzantine politics. Survived plots, rewrote the Roman legal canon, created magnificent architecture and rebuilt Constantinople after a huge riot, and launched invasions of Africa and Italy that did much to recapture territories that the bygone Western Roman Empire had lost for generations. But Justinian had a very dark side too. He was what we would now call a theocrat, a bigot, a homophobe, and an anti-Semite, forms of intolerance that flowed from his austere Christian piety and orthodoxy. Here to discuss the good and the bad, and to help me figure out why no one in Hollywood has made a blockbuster movie about this guy yet, is the aforementioned Peter Serras, whom I spoke to over Zoom, Here's a recording of our conversation. Professor Saras, congratulations on the publication of your book. Thank you. Please remind our listeners how long it takes a scholarly writer to produce a book like this.
1: Well, this was under slightly different circumstances because of COVID. So essentially... I began writing it about three years ago, but it was it was essentially written in the course of a year, to all intents and purposes. Wow! It was during COVID. I, there was lockdown. Uh, I had sabbatical from my university, so I had to do something. Uh, and so, with the research libraries closed, I sort of honed in on a topic that I've been working on for thirty years or so, Justinian, and and cracked on with it. And I was quite draconian with myself in terms of how I wrote the chapters. And then the whole publication process takes longer. So it's about three years from beginning... The book to its final publication.
0: And previously, you were the author of, uh, among other things, Byzantium, a very short introduction, which seems like a contradiction in terms. But I'm guessing that to write a very short introduction of Byzantium, you need to have a very long course of study in what you're trying to summarize.
1: Yes, I've been studying Byzantine history since I was an undergraduate. I specialized in it when I was an undergraduate back in the early 1990s and I've been teaching it since the mid-1990s, I tend to alternate between very specialist works addressed to a specialist audience and then works addressed to the public. I, I I think that historians have a responsibility to try to address a public audience and to try to write as best as they can while doing that. Very short introduction to Byzantium was my first foray into that, and I really enjoyed that experience. And that, in a sense, I think, was what led me ultimately to write the Justinian book.
0: So this is published by Basic Books, which is a popular publisher, not a university press. When you're pitching a book like this, I'm guessing editors are more familiar with Western Roman emperors or the emperors of a unified empire. Nero, Caligula, Constantine, the eastern half of the empire, even though it survive much longer is kind of more muddled in people's imagination and the historical figures who populate it, including somebody like Justinian, who arguably has done maybe more to shape our present than any of the people I just named. They're more obscure in people's mind. Is is that an impediment when you're trying to publish a book like this?
1: I think it is initially in terms of uh, sometimes engaging people outside of academia with it. But the great advantage of Justinian and the great advantage, as it were, if you work on the Byzantine period, the early Byzantine period, so covering the disintegration of the Western Empire, and then the way in which the Eastern Empire recast itself, is that Justinian and the and the emperors of that moment have a great legacy uh, in terms of the West, which editors can understand when you explain it to them, in terms of the contribution to the emergence of Western Christendom, and also a really important legacy to the East in terms of creating the circumstances out of which Islam would emerge. And it's true of my students. I think it's also true of publishers that when you explain the connections between this world and the world of Islam, the relevance of which is very much in people's minds, then they get it.
0: So this is a tangent, but uh, we had Orlando Fagus on this podcast a couple of months ago to talk about his book on the history of Russia. And I was surprised how important Byzantine theology in Asia Minor, that part of the world was to the creation of a Russian religious identity and Orthodox Christianity more more generally. But again, these are are really complicated subjects. The very word Byzantine in English language become a byword for complexity. Do you have a special challenge, maybe compared to some of your colleagues who teach Julius Caesar or Augustus or the Eastern Roman Empire? At first, it was subordinate to the Western Roman Empire. And then it became predominant. Is there a communication challenge about what exactly the Eastern Roman Empire was?
1: What people need to bear in mind is that uh, in the centuries before Justinian, uh, from the third century, the center of gravity of the Roman Empire as a whole has shifted eastwards.
0: What were the forces that caused that to happen? The,
1: the main one was the emergence of a, a great and aggressive superpower rival to Rome's east in the form of the Sasanian Empire of Persia which also takes place, emerges at the same time as we see the emergence of very aggressive uh, forces to the north of the empire from the barbarian world beyond the Rhine and Danube. And in response to this, we see the imperial system evolve such that you have a Western emperor to face down the northern barbarians and an Eastern emperor to take on the Persians. Now, the Persians are a much more consolidated, sophisticated imperial rival for the Romans. They are the prestige enemy. They're the other empire that claims universal dominion. So one ends up in a situation where the uh, the uh, senior emperor tends to be based to the East to face down the Persians. And that's a situation really from the beginning of the 4th century, end of the 3rd century, beginning of the 4th century. And so the crucial context of people who just know about the the empire of Augustus or Marcus Aurelius don't get until you explain it to them, is the fundamental importance of that shift eastwards we see, upon which then Constantine would build in the 4th century and then with his Christianization of the empire beginning. uh, And then uh, that is very much the legacy uh, that Justinian uh, will inherit. Uh, A Roman world where, although the Western Empire by that point has disappeared, a Roman empire which has long come to be dominated from the east, uh, 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 with the emperor's ruling from Constantine's great foundation of Constantinople.
0: One thing that's interesting that I learned from your book is how much the self-conception of people who lived in Constantinople and the Eastern Empire more generally, how much they retained the idea of being Romans. I think Romanitas is you know, this, the quality they had. There's one anecdote you have here where... I think it was Zeno, the Asaurian, I think he had died and they were looking for a new emperor. The, the people are chanting, We want a real Roman emperor. And I think it was Anastasius, this austere penny pincher who, who. But the idea was that even though they spoke Greek, they saw themselves as real Romans. And I'm wondering how much of that was just a historical conceit.
1: The Romanness of these people is genuine. As I say, Rome had ceased to be an imperial capital of significance in the third century. So the idea of having a capital other than, than Rome isn't a problem. Byzantine is a term of art used by historians. In the minds of the uh, inhabitants of the empire ruled from Constantinople, these people were Romans, down to the fall of the what we call the Byzantine or Eastern Roman Empire in the 15th century. To this day, the, the Turkish phrase used for Greek Christians in uh, Istanbul or in Cyprus is Rum. We're still described as Romans. So that Roman, this is real. Also in the sixth century, although Greek is the main language of the elite, you still have large Latin speaking communities in Constantinople, in Beirut, and in in the empire's Balkan provinces. And that's the world from which Justinian's family is coming from. Uh, They're coming to Constantinople in the late fifth century from the empire's primarily Latin speaking, very troubled Balkan provinces. And I think for Justinian and his family, an awareness of Roman identity and an anti-barbarian sentiment in the context of a world where the Western Roman Empire has fallen and new barbarian-led kingdoms have emerged. That sense is very sharp, and it's particularly sharp because they're coming from the empire's more war-torn Balkan territories where they have experienced the brutality of the warfare of the preceding decades firsthand.
0: When you say barbarians, you're using barbarians as the Romans would have used the word because it was sort of a catch-all for anybody who wasn't Roman. And I just say that because by this period in history, you had so-called barbarians who had lived in cities and spoke Latin and had adopted Roman ways and, and even led the Roman military, right?
1: Yes, I use this from the perspective of how this is viewed by the elite in Constantinople. Uh, so in the 5th century, the Western Roman Empire has broken down and fragmented into a series of autonomous kingdoms ruled over by kings of primarily non-Roman origin.
0: For instance, would Zeno the Isaurian, who was emperor in Constantinople, would he have been regarded as a barbarian?
1: He would have been regarded as, by members of the conservative elite in Constantinople, he would have been regarded as a Roman, but quite barbarous. <laughs> okay. They, coming from the, but they would have regarded as the, sort of the semi-civilized highlands uh, and Troublesome highlands of uh, of Asia Minor. Likewise, members of the conservative elite in Constantinople would have regarded the likes of Justinian's family with considerable suspicion. Again, they're coming to Constantinople from the least urbanised and least, in Roman terms, civilised parts. Of what remains of the Eastern Empire at that moment in time?
0: Sorry, it's impossible to read your book without thinking of all the movies that could be made here. And I keep saying Zeno the Isaurian because it really does sound like something that should be in a comic book, even though he was a real historical figure. And I'm kind of curious what happened to the Isaurians. You don't really hear much about them after that. However, what's really cinematic is the backstory on Justinian, as you relate. He and his his uncle, who also was an emperor in the East. They, as I understand it, were refugees from this war-torn land. And again, in this movie version of Justinian's life, it's almost like a kind of Hunger Games type thing where they're going to the capital from District 13. This really war-torn area, if I know my history, Illyria at that point was like a crossroads for Goths and Gepids and and villages were getting sacked. And they just kind of made their way to Constantinople with a rucksack on their back, looking to make their fortune.
1: Yeah, it it begins with with Justin, uh, Justinian's uncle, who, as you say, is coming from this war-torn region, which at the time he's born there in the mid-5th century, is a sort of war- a, a no-man's land, really, over which no one power exercises control. It's being fought over by Romans, by by Goths. It's been subjected to very intense uh, attacks by Huns. And this is a, as I said, an impoverished and war-torn landscape. And uh, when he's probably about 20, Justin and a couple of his friends, go on foot to Constantinople, literally with their knapsacks on their back. I think the more is economic migrants rather than refugees, because he's making a decision to go and try to create a better life for himself in Constantinople. The Balkans had always been the Roman Empire's, or had long been the Roman Empire's, main military recruiting ground. He's very lucky that when he gets to Constantinople, uh, they're recruiting for the reformed palace guards. Justin, we're told, is very striking in appearance. He has the makings of a good guards officer, in terms of being, you know, looking impressive in the palace and on the parade ground. He gets recruited into palace guards and then forges a very successful career for himself, where he ends up, both he's a frontline soldier, but he ends up also at the head of the palace guards in his 60s. And he then becomes emperor as a result of a power struggle in Constantinople. Now, prior to his becoming emperor, he has a very happy marriage, with a rather wonderful woman called Euphemia, who's an ex-slave girl, who I'm rather fond of as a character. But they're childless. Justin writes to his sister back home, in what still remains a very troubled and impoverished part of the Roman world, and suggests that she send her son to Constantinople for him to raise. And that is our future Emperor Justinian. I think he probably arrives as a boy of about eight. Uh, he's raised by Justin, who then adopts him, adopts him as his son. By the time Justin becomes emperor, he has enrolled Justinian into the palace guards. and once Justin is Emperor, Justinian's rise to power begins.
0: I'm picturing Russell Crowe as as Justin and Matt Damon as Justinian worked pretty well. Yeah. And I'm wondering, is that just because I'm a complete layperson that I make those associations? Or like as an august scholarly historian, do you banish that kind of image from your mind?
1: No, I, I think that we're crying out for a film of Justinian. I'm to- many years ago, it was claimed that Gore Vidal had written a screenplay for a, a film of Justinian. <laughs> we need to find that. Martin Scorsese was supposedly going to direct. But I've never seen, nothing ever came of it. It is mentioned in a book that was published uh, back in the 90s. And in terms of Justinian's wife, the great. Theodora I always thought the person who would play her best would have been Joan Collins though she's a, she's a bit old for it now. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> well you know I, I think she's one of our regular listeners. So one okay. thing to emphasize here is that Justinian was not the real name of, of Justinian it bore no resemblance to his real name. That name was picked in homage to Justin which to my modern ears, is kind of weird. It's it's like, you know, your nephew calling himself Peteronian or something like that.
1: It's a technical thing. So his origin, original name is Petrus. He's referred to initially as Petrus Sabatius, after his father Sabatius. And then when he's adopted by Justin, Justinus, he then becomes Justinianus, Justinian, because of the adoption.
0: The power struggles that took place in Constantinople during this period are, are the stuff of legend and really do seem to approximate the kind of lurid story you see in in fictional accounts like Game of Thrones and stuff like that you describe this process the way Justin that's Justinian's uncle came to the throne and it really was a bunch of dudes locked In the equivalent of a smoke-filled room, deciding, well, who's going to be emperor? Justinian's rise to power is tied up with his his uncle's rise to power. And his uncle was really old. Like you say, well, he was in his 60s. That's kind of, for our purposes, Joe Biden stuff. It's like you're in your 80s or something by the standards of that age. People, I think, usually died in their 30s or 40s. How did his uncle, who was a soldier, how did he get to become the emperor?
1: Well, Justin, yeah, you say, as you say, he's, he's elderly. He's about 68 when he ascends the throne. He's head of the palace guard. He knows the internal workings of the palace well. What happens is the elderly predecessor, the emperor Anastasius, dies late at night without having made any proper arrangement for his succession. He has three nephews, each one of whom could have made a good emperor. You also have various other aristocratic factions who have been waiting to try to get members of their family on the throne. As news of the emperor's death spreads, the most powerful courtly figures are summoned to the palace and they start discussing what's going to happen. As news spreads beyond the political circle in the palace, however, you also start getting massing on the streets outside the palace, the, the army, the guardsmen themselves, members of the of the circus factions who are uh, sort of sporting associations, which many of the urban poor belong to, much of the populations massing outside the palace, applying psychological pressure on those inside to come to a decision none of the different aristocratic factions can agree on a candidate. And so eventually, just because they're under such pressure to find an emperor, they agree on Justin as a sort of compromise candidate. I think in the expectation he won't be alive for very long. By the time he's dead, they will have arranged a a more blue-blooded emperor. And then what will eventually happen is that uh, during Justin's period, Uh, As emperor, Justinian will very carefully build up a support base for himself in the Senate, on the streets of the city by being generous to the urban poor, by reaching out to elements in the hierarchy of the imperial church to try to and to successfully manoeuvre himself until eventually his uncle Justin appoints him as co-emperor just a few months before his death. There's no clear plan that Justin initially intended his nephew to succeed him, especially if you're an elderly or vulnerable emperor. You don't want to have an obvious successor uh, uh, around whom hopes of regime change can coalesce, because then you you become very disposable. So Justin's quite careful not to designate Justin in his heir too early. He only really does so when actually an old war wound comes back to life and he realises uh, that he doesn't really have long left.
0: You mentioned the palace guards. And I think maybe a lot of people listening to this will naturally associate that with the Praetorian guards, who were kingmakers in an extremely corrupt and unwholesome way back in Rome, Uh, especially during the crisis of the third century. There were transfers of power in Rome that were literally just auctions, where the Praetorian guards were, were auctioning off the post of emperor. In this case, that, that wasn't the case. It wasn't the palace guards were the real power behind the throne. They were a power cluster within imperial politics, but not the decisive factor. Is, is that the case here?
1: Yes. The uh, political culture that has emerged in Constantinople by the 6th century is one whereby emperors are subject and political power is subject to uh, pressure from several directions. You have the the Senate largely representing the aristocratic landed interest. You have the palace guards and the other leaders of the army, the generals, who have a, a particular, tend to have a particular perspective on where they want the empire to go and how they want power to be used. You also have increasingly the leaders of the Christian church, represented by the patriarch of Constantinople. And you also have, to some extent, the representatives of the, the urban populace as well. Uh, each one of these groups can lobby the emperor when he's reigning and have uh, uh, an input potentially when there is a struggle for power. So the Palace Guard and the army is one interest group amongst
0: several. And on top of this already incredibly complicated power structure, you also have these I don't know how to describe them. They originated as essentially chariot racing fan clubs. To be clear, chariot racing, as I understand it, was like if you combine the popularity of British football and NFL football and F1 racing, In the modern context, altogether, that was the way people in Constantinople regarded chariot racing.
1: Yes. What's interesting is you have four teams in Constantinople, but those four teams are also the same in every city of the empire.
0: It's like if soccer hooligans started a political party, that's kind of the way I interpreted it. Could you explain... How the blues and the greens and these other colors exerted political influence in in all these cities? Yes, so
1: in so particularly in the hippodrome in Constantinople, it, the, the hippodrome is there as a sporting institution, but it's also in many ways a political institution, in that the emperor attends the games, as does a large part of the population of the city, and with the emperor there in his imperial box, he can then hear the chants and acclamations of the of the populace and the organized into these four. Uh, supporters clubs as it were these four factions coming to him from the Hippodrome around him so the Hippodrome and also a great deal of imperial ceremonial takes place in the Hippodrome so the Hippodrome is a very important point of contact and communication between the emperor and his subjects So if there's an unpopular policy or an unpopular minister or an unpopular patriarch, members of the circus factions might take the opportunity of the emperor's presence to start chanting against them. So they start to develop a political importance that way. But also, crucially, these sporting clubs are points of association between upper class young men, members of the senatorial families, members of the political elite, and the lower class youths who are also sports crazy, as it were and Who also throng the hippodrome, and who the upper class youths can then sort of pay and manipulate and mobilise to to riot on the streets, to riot against particular policies or, or particular politicians they oppose, or to uh, chant uh, a, a defamatory statements against those politicians or those churchmen they oppose. And so, and so the the uh, the sporting associations become very important, sort of cross class. Corporate bodies, which can be used to really uh, convey political messages in the hippodrome and apply political pressure on the streets of Constantinople through targeted rioting, targeted demonstrations, and so on. That even ends up being formalized. So, in the Roman constitution, as well as understood in this period, when an emperor is appointed, he is meant to be acclaimed by the Senate. He's also meant to be acclaimed by the army and the representatives of the army. In Constantinople, that normally means the palace guard. And he's also expected to be acclaimed by the people. The the circus factions come to be regarded in those ceremonial contexts as the voice of the people.
0: It's like as if, you know, a modern British prime minister were acclaimed by a bunch of guys in tracksuits representing Chelsea and Manchester United or something.
1: Italy long had its politician Berlusconi, whose power base was originally his control of a football club.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't understand Europe. But so you have a map here on page four of your book, one of many useful maps. The Hippodrome was basically located across the street from the Great Palace.
1: From the Great Palace to the Imperial Box is a staircase and corridor. So, so that the emperor can present himself, can attend the games, can present himself to his people.
0: You know, this is an era where, you know, if you got up in the public forum and started denouncing an emperor, you could lose your life. And yet these... Hippodrome races became a kind of free speech zone, where because you were with 10,000 people, people were screaming all sorts of hideous taunts at Justinian. And there was a sort of call and response thing, sort of reminds me of like modern Twitter or something, where you could just say anything you want. And you record a couple of instances where, where Justinian was essentially kind of booed out of the hippodrome, and, and then mobs would be unleashed and burn half the city. Could you describe the great rampage that took place where much of the city was burned down? And I I think it evolved from events that took place in public.
1: Yes. So uh, uh, the two main circus factions in Constantinople are the Blues and the Greens. Now, when Justinian is coordinating and uh, machinating his rise to power... He very carefully associates himself with the blue faction to be able to uh, draw on their sources of support, their supporters in the Senate and so on. So So he's used the circus factions to facilitate his own rise to power. Once he's in power, however, he tries to distance himself from them. And that starts leading to growing tensions between Justinian and the leaders. What then happens is there's an outbreak of rioting in 532 and leading members of both the main factions are arrested. Justinian is called upon to release them. He refuses. And this ultimately sparks off uh, several days of mass rioting in Constantinople, which will then be taken advantage of by members of the Senate in Constantinople, who have been hostile to Justinian since he came to power, feeling that he's wrong-footed them and that really the throne belongs to one of them. There are these, these, these aristocratic families circling around the throne, wanting to reassert control over it. They regard Justinian as a, as a low-class parvenu with no real right to be there. Those groups will then take advantage of the anger of the mob, resulting from the arrest of their leaders, to try to turn these riots that break out in Constantinople uh, into a full-blown coup with the, the the rioters being mobilised to try to storm the palace, with uh, our arms being distributed amongst them. And we have this extraordinary moment described for us in a contemporary source, the historian Procopius, private secretary of a, an important figure, the general Belisarius, who's inside the palace at this time, when Justinian considers taking flight, and is only dissuaded from doing so by his extraordinary wife, the Empress Theodora, and he manages to, to claw the situation back by unleashing some of his uh, favoured military retainers and generals, along with their private armed retinues, who go on to massacre uh, tens of thousands of the rioters in the Hippodrome. But it's it's very touch and go. There's a moment when it looks like Justinian's going to uh, surrender his control of the palace, which, which would have ultimately led to his
0: loss of power. You recount this episode vividly in your book. And I think in this episode, the best lines go to Justinian's wife. Often these these accounts tend to be apocryphal, but who essentially braces her husband's backbone by saying, well, we could flee and then spend a couple of years in exile trying to get back into power, but we'll have lost all our dignity. And what kind of emperor will you be living in fear? Let's talk about her, because we talk about Justinian and his uncle being lowborn. She not only, as I understand, was was Lowborn, but in those days, being an actress, I think you have a line in here saying not all prostitutes were seen as actresses, but all actresses were seen as prostitutes or or words to that effect. Tell us about her because he actually had to pass legislation to get her some respect.
1: Yeah, again, I think it really it's worth stepping back and talking about Justin a bit there because I think a really interesting uh, feature of this family is that the men of this family have quite, a clearly a very strong romantic streak.
0: It's a very sympathetic quality. They certainly didn't marry mm-hmm. up for fortune or convenience.
1: Not marrying for political purpose. So Justin, who ends up as head of the palace guard, could have got himself a very posh wife. Instead, he marries an upstate girl uh, who is a very formidable and rather splendid character in her own right, the empress Euphemia. In the film, I would I would have wanted her played by the British actress Barbara Windsor, if you know who she is. A Justinian, uh, likewise, marries in middle age, clearly for love rather than out of political design, this, this extraordinary woman Theodora, mm. Now, we're told by sources both pro-Theodora and anti-Theodora that in her childhood she'd been forced into prostitution. Her father had been a, a bear keeper, had been looking after the bears in the Hippodrome of Constantinople on behalf of uh, one of the circus factions. Uh, he then dies, throwing the family into poverty, and um, she uh, and her uh, siblings are forced Certainly to dance on the stage in the Hippodrome where you have these theatrical and pantomimic performances, but also we're told uh, to to sell her body. She ends up being the uh, the concubine, uh, the mistress of uh, a Roman governor who takes her to near Egypt, who, where he then abandons her with, with a child. Wow. And she has to then get herself back through Alexandria, through Egypt, through Syria, to Constantinople. During the course of that, she seems to discover religion. And she becomes very pious. When she gets to Constantinople, she meets up with Justinian. They have a connection, probably via the blue circus faction, which they have in common. But also, I think what draws them together at that point is their shared sense of piety. Justinian is obsessed with religion, obsessed with theology. She has discovered religion in a rather more, I think, emotive and uh, personal way. And they then form this extraordinary bond. Now, they're living together. It's before Justinian's emperor. They're living together by about 521, probably. But the problem here is his mother, Euphemia, the, the ex-slave girl, who clearly doesn't think that Theodora is good enough for her son.
0: Which is kind of ironic. Maybe like some of the critics, she
1: doesn't believe that this woman has really found religion to nearly the extent that she claims. Our sources tell us that Justinian, like Justin is handsome. You know, he's unmarried, he's getting a bit middle-aged, but still maybe one reason he hasn't got married yet is because his mother's being so difficult. Who knows? This isn't this, this, this is unknown. Justinian uh, can't marry her until, first of all, his mother dies, which she does. But then also the law has to be changed because by that by that point, he has been given senatorial status and senators aren't allowed to marry women who have been involved in what are regarded as disgraceful uh, professions such as acting. So he has to persuade Justin, his, his adopted father, to change the law so that he can then marry Theodora. Now, of course, Theodora's probably lobbied for this. But what's really impressive with Theodora, I think, I I think the the, the bond between them is very important. And for the period that she is alive, Justinian presents this as a joint rule when he is emperor. He's reigning with her. He consults her on policy. She clearly lobbies him on policy and she clearly lobbies him on policy in order to make life better, not just for her. allowing her to to marry him, but women like her. So we see lots of uh, important legislation cracking down on human trafficking, cracking down on people who force poor girls into prostitution, cracking down on those who won't allow actresses to give up their careers on the stage and choose a new path. And there's a lot of very, what we would think of as liberal legislation, women and the, the poor and orphans, and quite a lot of that I think we can ascribe to the influence of this extraordinary woman, Theodora. By the end of the book, in, there are many aspects of Justinian I find deeply troubling.
0: Spoiler alert, Jews.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, he is deeply persecutory, he is deeply intolerant. But Theodora, uh, I came away feeling immense admiration for and warmth towards.
0: Thanks for listening to the Quillette Podcast. Just a quick interruption so I can remind you that Quillette is also something you read, not just listen to. If you go to our website, quillette.com, this week, you will find a wide selection of great essays, including more long-form history from Herbert Bushman, who you'll know from the Dark Ages series. Some other gems include Susie Linfield's essay, The Return of the Progressive Atrocity, and Christina Button's widely read piece, Hamas Cheerleaders Are All Over Instagram. And now, back to the Quillette podcast. One source you draw upon at at some length in your book is the surviving correspondence between Justinian and the Pope, uh, or I guess several popes. He's a complicated figure because when you describe his rise to power and his cynical and effective use of populist politics among the circus factions... There's this Machiavellian quality to him, and you see him as this kind of very cold-blooded, cynical actor. But then in these letters that he writes to the Pope, he's almost like a schoolboy demonstrating his knowledge of the Bible and writing almost like obsessively to the Pope. And at some point, it's like kind of urging the Pope on to greater rigor in his application of Christian dogma. Was he a believing Christian his entire life?
1: The most consistent thread and theme across the entirety of Justinian's life, insofar as we can document it, is his fascination with religion and his deep sense of Christian piety. I think this informs his ruthlessness because he feels that he is motivated by a higher responsibility to morally cleanse the Roman Empire. In the modern idiom, was he a theocrat? He, what he He's desperate to bring to completion... The mission initiated by Constantine to Christianize the Roman state. There's a very deep-rooted sense in the early 6th century felt by many Christians that divine judgment is imminent and that mankind has to prepare itself for judgment. And one reason why, and I think this informs Justinian's awareness and his sense of urgency which is a very strong theme of his vision but let's say he's but the, the letters to the pope is writing he's writing before his emperor he's writing when he's just a guardsman his uncles become emperor they try they go in- involved in complicated theological discussions with the pope in constantinople but Justinian's trying to get in on the act and is showing his own knowledge and fascination with theology and that is there to the end of his reign but it is a a ruthlessness he he feels rather like some modern tyrants that A great deal of bloodshed and cruelty is justified by his higher sense of moral purpose and mission and his commitment to what he believes to be the collective spiritual good of Christianizing Roman society and preparing mankind for judgment.
0: And this informs our understanding of his architectural legacy. Preeminent among his works being the Hagia Sophia, you linger on that, and rightly. Everyone who's visited it, including you, is is awestruck by the building. Although it's it's certainly not in its best shape now under Turkish auspices. Are those architectural wonders owed to his Christian piety?
1: Yes, but uh, what's in the aftermath of the riots of five three two? Much of the monumental heart of Constantinople has been destroyed, and Justinian seizes upon this opportunity really to reconstruct much of the monumental heart of the capital in his own honour but also in honour of the Virgin Mary who is regarded as the patron of Constantinople and, and his Christian faith. And what's unusual about Justinian is that whereas previous Roman emperors even Christian Roman emperors had tended to mostly invest in secular building work in the capital. Justinian invests a a, a huge amount in church construction, not only uh, Hagia Sophia, though that is by far the greatest expression of it, but also a a whole series of other very important and very influential churches that would change forever the development of of, of Christian architecture and make a fundamental contribution to the evolution of, of Orthodox Christian worship. Justinian is motivated by this sense of higher moral purpose and this sense, this this determination to Christianize the Roman Empire. That sense of Christian moral duty informs a lot of his charitable instincts, his treatment of the poor, his treatment of orphans, his treatment of women. But it also informs the unprecedented degree of persecution which he introduces with respect to minority groups, non-Christians. Pagans are his main target, but also Samaritans. Jews suffer a great deal under his reign. He's the first emperor, first Christian emperor to legislate uh, and to actively against and to actively persecute men for having sex with men, responding to the moral demands of the church leaders. This really represents uh, both an era of unprecedented charity on the part of the emperors of Constantinople, but also an equally unprecedented period of cruelty and persecution, which I think would make a fundamental contribution to the future
0: evolution of Christian rule. Just as you're getting to like Justinian, or at least admire him, we learn a lot about that. And I think a lot of us, including me, who vaguely understand doctrinaire Christianity, certainly in its maybe medieval formulation, just see it as timelessly anti-Semitic or timelessly homophobic, your book brings some nuance to that my understanding is that even when christianity became the official faith under constantine there was at least some tolerance shown for jews and and pagans and and even by the time rome was being sacked by the, the goths and the vandals you you still had a few plucky pagans praying to their gods trying to get deliverance but this book showed me that there at least in the eastern part of what was once a unified roman empire it was really justinian who started drawing hard lines Against paganism, Judaism, what he saw as licentious sex acts, did he anticipate, if that's the right word, the later intolerant, often murderously so, church of the medieval period, which really did have a vicious inquisitorial quality to it?
1: Yes, Justinian, to my mind, lays both the psychological and legal foundations for the much more persecutory cultures and societies that would emerge Mm. in the world of the medieval Latin West. Where Justinianic law, where Justinian's legislation would be received and built upon by both secular rulers and the church. Rulers before, emperors, Christian emperors before Justinian had legislated against paganism. They had legislated against public acts of pagan sacrifice. But there was a widespread expectation that people could just sort of pretend to play by the rules, be allowed to get on with sort of what they want to get on with in privacy at home as there's well. There's a culture of public conformity. Don't ask, don't tell. Don't ask, don't, exactly. Don't ask, don't tell. For Justinian, that is not good enough. Justinian, with respect to pagans, makes it illegal not just to perform pagan rites, but even to be a pagan. Uh, he tell, he says pagans have to convert or leave the empire. And if they make a false conversion, they are to be executed. Uh, this is the most hardline anti-pagan legislation any Christian emperor has ever passed. He applies a steady downward pressure on the legal rights and civil liberties of other religious minorities, Jews and Samaritans in particular, and also those Christians following forms of Christian doctrine and belief, which Justinian believes to be heretical. So essentially he's constructing a new type of society in which your civil rights at law are proportionate to your officially reckoned degree of orthodoxy. This is something very new in the Roman world. In terms of his anti-Jewish measures and attitude, and in terms of his uh, persecution of men who have sex with men, what we're really seeing is the emperor responding to the demands and agenda of the most hardline elements in the Christian church, who previous emperors had simply ignored or set aside. So in the 5th century and en- legislation of Christian emperors, it's made clear that the empire has Christianity as its official religion, but Judaism is granted the status of a permitted sect or a permitted religion. And that gives a lot of legal protection to the emperor's many Jewish subjects. Justinian removes that cover and legislates to permit acts of considerable violence and brutality towards his Jewish subjects.
0: A dominant theme here, uh, which you've discussed just in this brief interview, is the totalizing instinct of Justinian, that it's it's not enough to push the populace in a particular direction, but he has to codify and regulate, in this case, right down to people's individual consciences. He took the same approach, more famously, to law under his Justinian Code, which as you describe in the book, Justinian didn't personally write the Justinian Code, but he did marshal the services of preeminent legal minds in his empire and accomplished this in an incredibly short amount of time. Is it accurate to say that, legally speaking, his legacy is felt to the present day in the law books, particularly civil law jurisdictions?
1: Absolutely. So the explosion of legal activity when he becomes emperor is really very striking. But alongside that explosion of new legislation, he also codifies and condenses and boils down the entire inherited body of Roman law.
0: Which was a mess, as I understand, it was a complete mess. There's
1: so much legal science and material in circulation. It's very hard for people to work out what the law on any given topic or situation is. Justinian takes this in hand and, in a series of uh, codification projects, the Codex, the Digest, and then he has a, a sort of new textbook for the law, of the Institute he boils down this 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 massive inherited material uh, so if we take the digest which is codification of the writings of the legal uh, scholars the uh, jurists he reduces that material by 95% into a new condensed and christianized 5% of the roman law now what's really important is that the way in which roman law is then transmitted to posterity is entirely as it leaves the hands of Justinian's law commissioners and that Justinianic Roman law will then form the basis of the legal system that will operate across the entirety of Europe apart from England uh, until the age of Napoleon and even then what Napoleon is doing is recodifying essentially Justinianic Roman law in a slightly new form so so uh, the civilian systems that are still uh, apply in much of the world today, ultimately go back to the efforts of Justinian and his extraordinary law commissioners.
0: This is one of the reasons why I, I don't understand why he doesn't get more historical attention as compared to some of the more Western Roman figures.
1: I think part of it is that, as it were, I say Justinian is an autocrat and a man of profound and intolerant faith. Uh, who determines not just how Roman law will be transmitted to posterity, but also how Christian orthodoxy, how Christian theology will be received in the Middle Ages. Now, a a crucial point here is the Enlightenment in the 18th century, the great age of reason, the era of the philosophes, who are are kicking against and reacting against what they regard as the obscurantism of of religion. And I think Justinian is, is too religious a figure to be regarded as anything other than the epitome of obscurantist tyranny on Mm. the part of the the thinkers of the Enlightenment. And that then, I think, informs a great deal of how he is regarded by posterity thereafter.
0: It's very hard to take a romantic view of Justinian, in part because there's so much surviving documentation. He's one of these people who's hard to mythologize because he himself was so pathologically legislative he pronounced decrees on all sorts of things, like um, right down to sort of what kind of circus clown, you know, what sort of salary he'd be paid by various factions. This
1: is why some people have sometimes compared him to, to Stalin, and, and I think so. Justinian is is very much a figure of obsession on the part of admirers of Vladimir Putin in Russia. Mm. Justinian has an obsession with the minutiae of government, and even, as you say, the fine detail of what levels to pay are going to go to provincial administrators on the fringes of empire. And he has a totalizing view of roman society such as we see him legislating on pretty much every aspect of of, of life as lived in sixth century byzantium and uh and, I say, and we, we hear the emperor's voice here. In this legislation, there are connecting themes and motifs, which we can trace in his earlier letters to the Pope, which we can trace in his, his the, the theological works emanating from his court. I say there's a, there's a personal contribution here on the part of the emperor.
0: Well, you, again, make some inferences based on the wording of some of the legislation. When it has a particularly hectoring or didactic quality, <laughs> you tend to ascribe it to his personal hand, yes?
1: I'm always in a hurry. He's, we're, we're constantly hurrying people along. As I say, there is uh, this 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 urgency, which, which isn't always to his advantage. So the first version of, of his code is completed in too much of a hurry and has to be done again. Again, the, the building of Hagia Sophia is in places a bit structurally ramshackle, and the eastern arch of it will collapse and bring down the dome in 558. Admittedly, there's a, a, an earthquake involved. But again, there is an inference that his constant egging people along his constant hurrying of them doesn't always have beneficial consequences
0: you have a great detail about the hagia sophia which i didn't realize where they were so desperate for structural underpinnings that they they brought in columns and and other uh, elements from They sort of cannibalized it from other structures. Is it true that there's pagan uh, monuments buried down in the basement, but they turn them upside down just to illustrate you're just here as a supporting column, not because we like you?
1: In his rebuilding after the the riots in 532, one thing he does, I think that, that clearly during those riots, there's a moment in the palace when they were running out of supplies. And what he builds adjacent to the palace is a massive underground system to supply it with water. Visit this still in Istanbul today. The, the Roman, the, the Roman Latin name for it is the Cisterna Basilica. It's just adjacent uh, today to Hagia Sophia, and and in that, as you say, they cannibalise. Pagan statues of Gorgons and other mythological figures, which you can still see amidst the watery remains of this system. But the stonemasons do indeed appear to have deliberately placed them upside down or on their side, I think perhaps to try to capture their demonic or uh, magical properties and stop them seeping out as it were.
0: I mean I I had high hopes for this movie earlier they're even higher now because there's a big Dan Brown component coming here where the devil's eyes are going to start to glow.
1: My favourite Dan Brown element is that one of the most fascinating literary sources we have for Justinian's reign is we have this character Procopius who is secretary to Justinian's General Belisarius who writes a very public and and a brilliant history of Justinian's military campaigns. But at the same time, he also writes a secret work in yes. which he announces the emperor, the so-called secret history or anecdota. And that is discovered 400 years ago in the Vatican archives.
0: And that's very gossipy, if I remember. Oh yeah,
1: yeah, and extremely. So again, it goes into Theodora's early days, accuses her of all sorts of sexual depravity. It accuses Justinian's general, Belisarius, of being a cuckold whose wife is sleeping with their adoptive son. Why would he write
0: this kind of thing that if it had been discovered at the time, God knows what would have happened to him?
1: Well, he's genuinely, I think, in many ways, opposed to aspects of the regime and becomes more opposed to it over time. So having to be relatively positive about the regime in, in his public writings i think there's an element of him letting off steam in this private writing but also i think perhaps more significantly we always know that there are uh, wealthy well connected anti-justinian elements at court and it may well be that that works like this are being commissioned or sponsored by them perhaps with a view to these texts then being released upon justinian's death and indeed when justinian does die we have an outpouring of criticism of the regime Some of those criticisms very similar in certain respects to some of the allegations, some of the the less outlandish allegations made by Procopius. So it may be he's preparing to release this after the emperor's died, but it looks like the emperor outlives him. By
0: the way, in terms of some of these aristocratic factions and critics that were just waiting to pounce if Justinian made a wrong move, You have one subplot here where you suggest that one of the reasons that Justinian built so many beautiful buildings is he was trying to compete with some of these wealthy aristocrats who were using their own funds to gussy up uh, Constantinople. There's one, I believe, sort of a a wealthy widow, fabulously rich. I think she builds some beautiful church, which, you know, she adorns with an, an inscription People in those days weren't very humble. Justinian at one point, I think, created a whole town in Illyria devoted to to his cult. And in in my mind, she sort of uh, would be played by Maggie Smith. (laughs) She was seen as a power center. Could you describe, you alluded to it earlier, some of the the scheming that was going on all this time, like Justinian's writing his codes, he's conducting military campaigns, which we'll talk about. But all this time, there's these aristocratic factions. Did they ever stop? plotting against him. And, and tell us a little bit about this woman uh, who seemed to be behind a lot of it.
1: When Justinian first comes to power, a major figure in Constantinople is this woman, Anikia Juliana, who herself is the descendant of Western Roman emperors. She is married to a very important figure in the political uh, world of Constantinople. Uh, she feels that her bloodline or members of her, of her dynasty have a very strong claim on the throne. And in order to make clear their political presence in the capital, she funds the building of a huge church uh, known as Saint Polyuctus, which until Justinian rebuilds Hagia Sophia, appears to be probably the largest church in the capital, or certainly one of the largest churches in the capital. And he and Theodora build, and as you say, there's this inscription in it where she goes on about her noble lineage and uh, uh, conveying the importance of her bloodline and household. And what's interesting is that Justinian Theodora either before or at about the same time as the construction of Hagia Sophia, build this other marvellous church. It's, it's probably before Hagia Sophia. This other marvellous church called uh, the Church of St. Sergius and Bacchus, which has it, an inscription, which is clearly refuting everything she, uh, Anikia Iuliana, has put in her Inscription, saying uh, how about previous people have, have engaged in, in sort of vanity projects.
0: <laughs> but this is a very expensive way to have a Twitter fight. So you have,
1: as it were, these political debates immortalised or monumentalized in stone. But I also think you have a a, polit- a pamphleteering culture with pro and anti-regime propaganda in circulation in political circles in Constantinople. And there are conspiracies against Justinian down to when he's a very old man, down into... The 560s, just three years before his final death, an attempted assassination against him. The people still regarded him as worth trying to assassinate when he was already very old.
0: Is it accurate to say he never became an unambiguous establishment figure? There were always elements who saw him as a disruption of the traditional aristocratic order? Yes,
1: and uh, his, his attitude towards key elements of the senatorial elite is always antagonistic. And when eventually he dies, his successor, his own nephew, Justin II, one of his first acts is to try to rebuild bridges with those members of the senatorial class in Constantinople who Justinian had consistently alienated and sought to contain
0: it's a testament to how fascinating justinian's life was that we've managed to talk all this time without even mentioning what most other people in the mediterranean basin would have regarded as the most important feature of especially his early rule which is that he set loose a successful military campaign in north africa And for a time in Italy to reclaim, if that's the right word, for the Roman or at least quasi-Roman world, a lot of territory that had been lost during the fourth and fifth centuries to barbarians, Goths and Vandals in particular. And there's this other protagonist, Belisarius who, at Justinian's command, launched this incredibly complicated amphibious assault on North Africa, destroyed the Vandal Kingdom that had been built there on the ruins of the old Roman civilization, and then went on to attack Sicily and uh, confront Theodoric's, He had died by now, old regime in Italy. Was there a thought during this time that Justinian was going to reclaim all or or most of the lands that the Roman Empire at its height had controlled? We have
1: no real evidence that Justinian had it in mind to try to reconstitute the full geographical extent of the old empire before the crisis of the 5th century. There's one moment that when uh, Sicily has just fallen, he says how God willing we might be able to regain all lost territories, but I think that's uh, uh, he's got carried away with himself at that point. I think instead what we tend to see is a series of very carefully targeted military interventions in, first of all, North Africa, as you say, then Italy, and then ultimately later on Spain, where Justinian takes advantage of the structural weaknesses uh, emerging in the new post-Roman kingdoms that have emerged around the old Mediterranean core of the Roman Empire. The point being that these new societies in the West are king-focused societies, where the quality of an individual king can make or break not just the success of a regime, but the viability of the kingdom as a whole. Essentially, you have a a disputed succession, first of all in Vandal Africa, then in Italy, and then later on in the Visigothic Kingdom in Spain. And in each set of circumstances, the imperial authorities strike at a moment of disputed succession when they know these regimes are going to be at their weakest. But I think of this in terms of opportunistic imperialism, responding to these opportunities as they emerge, but without, I think, an overarching plan to just uh, keep on going until they end up in Britain again. I think he's, he's, he's interested in restoring Roman control around the Mediterranean, Restoring control over the commercial routes of the Mediterranean, getting back under control the wealthiest territories.
0: He seemed to have had a a policy of rail politique uh, with, uh, for instance, the Franks and Burgundians, and and I guess he presumably realized that there were these power centers in Western Europe that he wasn't going to reconquer Gaul and and, and Britain, as you say.
1: There, there is some evidence he's maintaining some sort of diplomatic subsidies with the more Romanized populations in Western Britain. But that's that's a. Another issue. But also, uh, just going back to uh, the regimes that he's taking on the Vandal Kingdom in Africa, the Ostrogothic regime in Italy, these are the most politically and economically and militarily sophisticated of the regimes that emerged in the West. But also, crucially, from his perspective, they are heretics. They are followers of a form of Christianity which he regards as heretical, so I think there is a an imperialist mindset of restoring Roman rule to right the Roman territory, but once again his his sense of Christian mission here is crucial. And he will destroy the most important of the so-called Aryan kingdoms.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about Aryanism. It plays a strong role, not only in this book, but Peter Heather has a book called Christendom.
1: Fortunately, it came out after I wrote my one, so I'm very annoyed about that. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Look, I don't want to get too much into the Aryan heresy because it's fabulously complex. And I guess the easiest way to explain it is this was theologians during this historical period arguing about the nature of Christ, how much of Christ was was in the form of flesh and the relationship with God and the divine preeminence as between God and and Jesus. I'm not equipped to have this discussion. However, for our purposes, this super complicated theological discussion, which played out over generations, and there was the, the occasion schism, I think it was called, it took different forms. To some extent, it was a proxy for power struggle between different Christian centers. Can you take us back in terms of the Christian power politics then? Because you had Rome, you had Constantinople, but you also had Antioch, Alexandria, Jerusalem. To what extent did these schisms, and again, I think you had these barbarians who had embraced the quote-unquote wrong kind of Christianity, like the Goths in particular had embraced Arian Christianity, uh, and it took centuries for them to, to come around to, I think, what came to be called Nicene Christianity. How much of that was genuinely theological disputation with Justinian taking an Orthodox position? And how much of that was a proxy for power struggles between different power centers within the Christian world, including as between Rome and Constantinople?
1: I think there are two aspects here. I think, first of all, there's the dispute which the Aryan dispute concerns, which is the, rela- the relationship of God the Father to God the Son within the Trinity. Now, without getting to the theology, the point is that groups like the Goths and the Vandals were converted to Christianity or were received, in receipt of Christian missionaries at a moment when the followers of a churchman called Arius were in the ascendant, and they believed that God the Father was superior to God the Son. What then happens is, as that form of Christianity spreads amongst them, the Arians end up losing the debate within the imperial church. So groups like the Goths and the Vandals end up with a different form of Christianity to the imperial church. Where the politics come in there, I think, is that Aryan Christianity or non-imperial Christianity then starts to become a marker of non romanness It gets bound to Vandal identity, Gothic identity. And it
0: became a propaganda element in the Cassus Belli against the Vandals. And
1: there are claims that the Catholic or Imperial clergy are being persecuted by the Vandal regime in Africa, and that is used as a justification for the war as well. So I think there's, I think there's a power politic dimension in the struggle between the Imperial Church and followers of, let's call it Arianism, the church historians don't like that phrase anymore, but let's just call it that. Then there's a separate dispute over the relationship between the human and divine in the person of Christ, which gets very theologically complicated. Here, I think in Justinian's period, this is bound up with institutional authority, in that the church council at which a particular definition of the faith which comes to be regarded by Justinian as orthodox was established also establishes the authority of the Pope as, these, uh, as having a, suprem- a supremacy of honour in the church and also builds up the power of the patriarchal Constantinople The Council of Chalcedon? Yeah, that's right. In the mid fifth century. So popes in Rome and patriarchs of Constantinople, like the Chalcedonian, what happens at Chalcedon, whereas bishops in Alexandria in particular, one of the other big centers of the church, they lose out in the theological arguments, but they also see their power within the church diminished. So there is ecclesiastical power politics that then start coming into play in that dispute. But that dispute in Justinian's reign is one which he is trying to resolve primarily theologically. And this is where we see his, the- his fascination with theology kick in, that he is determined to try to resolve this division within the imperial church, resulting from Chalcedon. And he wants to do this by two means. First of all, by genuinely engaging in theological dialogue uh, with those who are resistant to the official definition of the faith as established at Chalcedon. And Justinian will personally uh, preside over discussions and debates on this issue and intervene in them. But then ultimately, he'll say, OK, I've tried to reason with you people. If you won't accept, the line that is now agreed, I will expel all bishops who refuse to acknowledge the definition of the faith from the church. So he will engage with the ideas, but he will ultimately crack down on those who as individuals prove to be resistant to imperial authority as expressed by the church councils. And that's part of the contradiction of this man, that he's he's obsessed with ideas and is willing to engage in theological discussion, but is ultimately deeply intolerant of those who at the end of the day, simply will not acknowledge his authority and that of the empire.
0: I'm wondering if you could comment on how his behavior compares to that of Constantine, who who several centuries before attended the Council of Nicaea, but in a maybe more humble capacity, uh, maybe more as observer, participated somewhat, but was kind of just taking his cues from what the bishops decided,
1: Yes. So so the first council of the church to thrash out these theological issues had been presided over by Constantine at Nicaea in 325. Now, Constantine had adopted Christianity, associated himself with it, but in many ways, he doesn't really get what is psychologically different about Christianity compared to the hmm. world out of which he's emerged. So Christianity has these concepts of orthodoxy and heresy that have no traditional place in Roman religion. In In the Roman world, you can sort of agree to differ over religion. One
0: interpretation of, of Constantine's brand of Christianity was that it's theorized that he came to it through the cult of Saul Invictus, which was the pagan cult of, of a preeminent sun god within the pagan tradition, and saw Christianity kind of like that.
1: Yes, and then and then he and then as he comes under growing Christian influence, his Mm. view of religion becomes more Christian. But I say Christianity has this concept of orthodoxy and heresy, whereby er this idea that erroneous belief closes the pathway to salvation, and that's why you have to try to thrash out these issues and define true belief and extirpate erroneous belief. Now we have this dispute, which actually is the Arian dispute. The leaders of the church. Call upon Constantine to intervene and help them resolve this because they want to be able to harness the power of the emperor to help define orthodoxy and extirpate heresy. Constantine's instinct initially is so he writes to them and says, Look, why can't you just follow the example of philosophers and agree to differ over this very trifling? The matter? Greek tradition. Uh, yeah, that, that is Constantine viewing religion through the essentially tolerant lenses of his non Christian upbringing he gets really he he was he ultimately responds to the demands of the leaders of the church to preside over this council and to give them what they what they want justinian has no problem with taking these ideas very seriously he fundamentally believes that erroneous belief closes the pathway to salvation there's no option of just agreeing to differ and trying to resolve these disputes again is from his perspective, crucial to ensuring divine's favor and support for the empire and salvation for him and his subjects.
0: That's all too modern, both in regard to religion, unfortunately, and in regard to to politics. In terms of purity tests, like Justinian is, and I guess we'll wrap up here for better or for worse. There's something extremely modern about Justinian: the the obsession with bureaucracy, the obsession with centralization, a totalizing approach to government commanding obedience building infrastructure often when people write books like this i ask them if you met this figure some by by time travel you were able to meet him do you think the two of you would have enough in common in terms of your your understanding of politics and humanity to to actually have a conversation Uh, and and would there be elements of the modern world that that justinian would recognize
1: i think i'd be able to have a safe conversation conversation with Justinian, if we limited it purely to theology and anything else, I'd be very worried that he'd be uh, packing me off to prison pretty quickly. I think he is in many ways the, the uh, archetype of the modern autocrat. What he lacks, probably for the to the good fortune of many of his subjects, especially the religious minorities, were of course the modern autocrat's technologies of repression and coercion and means of communication. Uh, What he also lacks is he isn't as ruthless as many modern autocrats would be. I think there is a constant limitation in that, particularly later in his life, after the death of Theodora, some of his uh, intolerance is sometimes restrained by a need to show acts of Christian charity and forgiveness. So many of those who conspire against him and who are arrested end up being spared because it's more politically useful for him to be seen to be merciful. So that that is a difference, but um, I think it was I think it was Trotsky who once described uh, Stalin as Genghis Khan with a telephone. There is a certain legacy of mindset that unites uh, many of these autocrats and tyrants across history.
0: Peter Sarris is the author of Justinian, Emperor, Soldier, Saint. He joined us from his home near Cambridge in England. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to the Quillette podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Quillette podcast. Quillette is where Freethought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events.